You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Wonder Woman 1984. This world is not yet ready for all that you will do. Your time will come, Diana. And everything will be different. Citizens of the world. I'm here to change your life. Anything you want. Anything you dream of, you can have it. You'll break your sargos. Diana, look at you. It's like now one day has passed. I don't want to be like anyone. I want to be an apex predator. You've always had everything, while people like me have had nothing. Well, now it's my turn. Get used to it. I've never been one for rules. The answer is always more. Fly. They will never find us. I forgot to tell you. What? Radar. Will they will they shoot at us? Barbara, what did you do? I'm not so keen on this one, I figure uh, you are, but you know what, I'm ready to go. I think we can do better. Parachute pants? Yeah. Um... Does, it, does everybody parachute now? All right, everybody. You were just listening to the trailer for Wonder Woman 1984, and the story is as follows. Diana Prince lives quietly amongst mortals in the vibrant, sleek 1980s, an era of excess driven by the pursuit of having it all. Though she comes into her full powers, she maintains a low profile by curating ancient artifacts and only performing heroic acts incognito. But soon, Diana will have to muster all of her strength, wisdom, and courage as she finds herself squaring off against Maxwell Lord and Vachita, a villainess who possesses human strength and agility. The film is starring Gal Gadot, Chris Pine, Kristen Wiig, Pedro Pascal, Robin Wright, and Connie Nielsen. It is written and directed by Patty Jenkins, co-written by Geoff Johns and David Callahan. Here to join me for this podcast review, I have Nicole Ackman. Hi, everyone. Danilo Castro. Hello. Sarah Clements. Hello. And Ryan C. Showers. Hello, hello. Okay. I wish that this movie was better. <laughs> I'll just start off by saying that. Don't we all? <laughs> just laying it out. Hashtag, I wish for this podcast to go smoothly. Hashtag, I wish for film Twitter discourse to go away permanently. Hashtag, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. But sometimes we don't always get what we wish for. Wonder Woman came out in 2017, directed by Patty Jenkins once again, to 
tremendous box office, very strong reviews. I personally was a very big fan of the first film. I know some people feel a little differently about the third act. They feel it kind of goes off the rails a little bit. Visual effects got a little wonky, yada, yada, yada. I was not one of those people. I really loved that movie. So I was all for a sequel to Wonder Woman, especially because Warner Brothers DC has done this thing lately with the DCEU where they're kind of making movies that are connected to the Justice League and trying to tie things together, but also at the same time, they're trying to make their movies stand alone a little bit more, which I'm a fan of. I don't like it when everybody tries to attempt to do this whole connected universe thing. So another standalone Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman movie was something that I was really looking forward to. Here we are now, release delays due to COVID-19, HBO Max premiere, and of course, everyone's got some takes. So, Nicole Ackman, we'll start off with you. What did you think of Wonder Woman 1984? I will start off by saying that I do not recommend watching this back-to-back with the first Wonder Woman because I think it can only make it look worse. Um, I really like the first Wonder Woman movie. Of course, it does cater somewhat specifically to me, a World War I nerd. But I thought it was really fun and really meaningful and heartfelt, especially like for a superhero film. And so I did have, I think, maybe a bit of high expectations for Wonder Woman 1984. Um, I also really, really loved Birds of Prey. So I was kind of ready to get onto this whole DC um, comics thing. And, and I am traditionally a Marvel girl, but I found this film to be pretty disappointing. I do still think there are sections of it that are really fun. And I think that generally the performances in it are pretty good. Like I love everything that Pedro Pascal is doing in this film. Uh, I also, I I have a lot of issues with the plot. I think most of my issues with the film do fall at the hands of the script. Uh, But like there are fun sequences in it. I don't think it's as bad as some people are making it out to be like the people who are like, it's the worst film of 2020. I'm like, well, you obviously haven't seen enough films that I know you haven't seen Artemis Fowl now, but (laughs) I do think that it completely fails to live up to uh, its predecessor. And I think that's a shame. All right. Why don't we hear next from Danilo Castro? Um, I was one of those people that you just described, Matt. I, I like the first Wonder Woman up to a point. And I do think it gets a little dicey towards the end. It gets a little cliched, I think, in spots where I think the movie had done a good job avoiding it up to that point. So I was hoping going into this one that they were going to let Patty Jenkins and the creative team sort of take the reins a little bit more than it felt uh, in the first one. And uh, I'm going to echo some of what Nicole just said. It's it's good in spots, but it is very patchy. It feels like a couple different movies stitched together. I think the plot is not strong enough to sustain the sort of jerkiness of those uh, different subplots. And I think uh, overall, yeah, it just it just doesn't come. I think the performances on the whole are not as strong as they were in the first one. I think the good elements, uh, a lot a lot of them carry over from the first one. And so I feel like there wasn't a lot that was brought to the table. So pretty disappointed overall i'll I'll save some of the specifics for later on but this is definitely a a step down from the first one okay why don't we hear next from sarah yeah like matt was saying i too think that the first wonder woman is amazing best movie in the dceu so far 
So my expectations were super high for this one. And when it starts off with that, you know, Hans Zimmer score, it's energetic. It's amazing. We're in Themyscira again. There's Connie. There's Robin, like Amazons flying all over the place. I was (laughs) like, this is going to be amazing. Like, I'm ready to go. And it just kind of just goes downhill from there. It was, I mean, that doesn't mean to say I didn't have fun. I had fun at parts, but then it just starts, especially in the middle section, it starts to drag a lot and it takes a long time for the action to come, too long for the action to come. Um, And then I had a lot of, my bigger issues with the film has to do with the villains, which I can get more into detail detail later, but I think it would have been much more beneficial to, to the plot if, they, sh- they only had one villain and they really concentrated on that one specific villain, like more origin story um, and stuff like that. So, yeah, those are my initial initial thoughts. OK. And finally, Ryan C. Showers. Well, I I loved the, the first Wonder Woman. I thought it was impressive as a piece of entertainment. But uh, there was also some very credible filmmaking um, choices, uh, directing and production values that went into that film. Um, and obviously it left a huge, um, it, it left a huge mark on pop culture over the past four years. Um, so it, expectations were high for this. Um, that being said, I, I really thought this was a pretty pathetic attempt at a sequel. Um, I, I really didn't like it from the minute it started. I like, I will, I, I agree, I agree with Sarah. And I'm glad she brought up the score because the score got me so jazzed in the first like 30 seconds. I was like, okay, this is really cool. And, um, no, from it, basically from the first scene, that first big action sequence to the second big action sequence at the mall, I was so off put by like the, uh, by the tone of the film and everything just seemed so cheap. And I was like, really, this is what they're coming back with after, you know, having such a great first outing. Um, and I, I, the, I hated the Chris Pine plot so much. Like I, it's, there's like, in terms of writing within like the, this insular film and the series as, as a whole, they had so many different avenues they could have gone to develop um, the character of Wonder Woman and this world without bringing him back. Um, I had problems with just about every aspect of the film. I really didn't like it. All righty. Gathering all that together now. <laughs> I think the first thing I want to start off with here is tone. I want to start off with the fact that they set this movie in 1984, jumping all the way from World War One. We skipped World War Two. We skipped Vietnam. We went straight to the 80s. And that opening, like Sarah described, Hans Zimmer's opening music, pumping, it is pretty fantastic. I actually think that that opening with Robin Wright, you know, telling uh, Diana after the American Wonder Woman warrior sequence that she cheated and, you know, it's only going to be, you know, the truth and the truth is all there is and no hero is born from lies, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it's like, okay, great. This is the thesis of the movie. All right, let's let's go. <laughs> Cut to 1984. You get the costumes, the colors, 
And we do get this feeling of a bygone era of superhero films that are simply not made anymore, a.k.a. I know people have made this comparison a lot, but the Richard Donner Superman movies. So knowing that that's probably what they were going for, this lighter tone compared to the first, something that resembled a different era of filmmaking. What did you guys think of that creative choice? I liked it. I was on board with it, actually, in the beginning, the very, very beginning. Like in that mall sequence, I have to say, I was like, okay, it's different. It's not what I expected, but I'm here for it if they lean into it. I also was really on board with it at first. And I also just want to also say, to echo what you said, I really like the opening sequence. That that opening sequence, I was so fully on board with this movie that, that it was like the further it went. I was like, can we just go back to that? Like, let me just see her cheating at games again in her youth um but i was super on board with it at the beginning because i do think that there's a part of me that's like if you're gonna call your film wonder woman 1984 i need to see that 80s visual style i need the justification for calling it that and i feel like they did a good job with that especially earlier on in the movie and i was kind of like okay yeah this really gets us into this new world that diana is a part of pretty well actually uh it did feel like some of that i can't i can't decide if i just like got too used to it or if it actually faded throughout the film oh no it definitely fades (laughs) (laughs) nicole i really appreciate what um you just described about how they really needed to establish uh this time period um with the opening sequence um at the mall and um and i that does make sense uh i just found that the and there's no denying this film has so much fun with um, like discussions of technology and uh, the way that it plays with the costumes and the sets and um, everything period. Like, but for me, it, it was just too light and I, it just felt like there was a lower quality of filmmaking and effort that went into it compared to, uh, compared to the first film and how, beautiful it was that was constructed with the production values i i feel like the the standard nowadays in sequel making in hollywood is your sequel has to be darker and bigger stakes than the first film and i don't know how much darker you get than world war one so i can kind of understand if they wanted to buck tradition and take it in a totally different direction and kind of also feed into this idea that Wonder Woman really is, for all intents and purposes, the female Superman. And instead of making a Superman movie that's more akin to, like, Zack Snyder's vision of Superman for, like, Man of Steel, they wanted to go this Richard Donner-esque route and present a more cheesy, you know, version of the character that's a little bit more hokey and unbelievable and is all about earnest, you know, goodness which is what the first film, you know, was about at times and definitely what the character represented. But I think also placing it like in this era that is obviously vastly different contrasted to, uh, you know, the World War One era that was presented in the first film. I, I kind of agree, Ryan, that it, it can be pretty jarring that we went from one we went we went literally from one end of the spectrum all the way to the other without any kind of in between. And once again, I I have to ask, you know, did, did anybody else get the feeling that the Wonder Woman sequel would be set a few years more uh, later than um, 
sorry, it w- would be set like a little bit after World War One, not jumping freaking 70 years. <laughs> well, I would have loved to have seen Diana in like 1930s style. Yeah. <sighs> Think of all the outfits we could have gotten. I know. <laughs> I do think there's something to be said for the fact that, like, it is possible to pull off that lighter sequel. Like, I'm thinking about something like Thor Ragnarok. Like, if they got full tilt for comedy, then I think it would have worked. I think it almost feels like the issue is that they weren't willing to fully uh, commit to it here. And, like, I honestly think if the whole film had stayed more like the beginning was, maybe it would have worked better but it feels like the film tried to be too many things and yeah. it tried to be too many plot lines like i think having two villains uh super did not work for the movie and mm-hmm. i feel like that's part of where it fell apart is that it had and i i also have to wonder sometimes like what of this was studio interference what of this was uh patty jenkins vision because you can see a vision in the beginning of it but then it doesn't like carry through the rest of the movie I love that, like, you know, the um, the Steve and Diana sequences, like, feel like a nice, like, light rom-com. But then they, like, switch back to, they always go and switch back to um, Maxwell Lord's character. And he's always doing some, like, shady shit. And it just flip-flops all the time. And it's just, like, I wish that they had, um, you know, not edited it like that, maybe. Or written it differently, where, like, it wouldn't have been so... Like, the tone wouldn't have been so jarring. Like, oh, here's, you know, Diana and Steve doing fun things and, like, going to see some spaceships. And Steve is just so, like, a little kid eating his Pop-Tarts. And then there's, you know, Pedro Pascal's character in the Middle East stealing everyone's oil. And it's, like, it's just so strange. It's very strange. I think this is my biggest complaint overall with the decision to set it in 1984 is I, I can't help but feel like they made the decision to set this movie in this time period. And with that decision, what also kind of came along, maybe subconsciously, that maybe they, they really did not realize that they were doing it. I don't know. But every single stereotype from the 1980s made its way into each one of these characters. You know, you have... Max, who is the, the the representation of like 80s excess Wall Street business tycoon type, you know, you have Barbara, who is, oh, look at me. I have messy hair and glasses. I don't fit in and I'm clumsy, uh, even though I'm secretly so pretty. If people would just notice me type. And then you don't even get me into like the racial stuff in this movie, too, in the way it depicts, you know, some of the. um foreign sequences i mean i'm not gonna get into that in great detail but let's just say i wasn't a fan of any of it and i think that leaning into that so much with each one of these characters that did not help with the tone of the movie because it these characters didn't feel like characters they didn't feel like real people they they, they all just felt like stereotypes i agree <laughs> I also think you're really right, Sarah, and that part of what d- 
doesn't work is that as much as I love what Pedro Pascal is doing, it does sort of feel like his Max is happening in a different film from, like, the rom-com that we're in with Diana and Steve. And I really like that those parts. And, I, I mean, maybe it's just that Chris Pine is so charming in this role that, like, I'm willing to eat up whatever he's doing. But I thought that those parts, like, yes, I want to see Steve learn how to use an escalator. Like, that is what I'm looking for in this film, I guess. No, and because Steve died. Steve is dead. And you know what? The decision to bring him back, I am sorry, Nicole, it was cheap. I it, have to agree. It was. This was, yeah, this was my least favorite part of the movie. Like, but for me, far. like, if that rom-com was what they were All right, fine. You, you got those moments, and I'm, and I'm happy you were happy with those moments. But it was illogical, and it made no sense. And that is the studio interference part that I guarantee you that you were alluding to before, where they were like, oh, the chemistry between them was so good. Damn, I wish we hadn't killed them off. Let's think of an idea to bring him back. I think, though, to sort of thread the needle between these two points, I agree it is cheap, and it was sort of taking advantage of our uh, enjoyment of the first one to bring his character back. But to Nicole's point, once he is there, he's responsible for some of the better spots of the movie. And I think that in and of itself is a problem because none of the new additions can really hold a candle. Well, like, his that's- charisma carries whole sections of this film. His charisma carries whole sections of this film. And I think that like part part of why that's necessary is because of the bad screenwriting. Um and because of the ways that like the film doesn't fit together. But if that lighthearted tone was what they were going for, that's the part of it that works. And I do think, like Sarah said, it's very jarring when then you're suddenly thrown into the other plot lines. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Exactly.
life sucks as a grown-up. I think that was good enough. I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> no. Right. Well, see, like, for me, like, when it comes to sequels, I feel like, you know, I feel like the, if they really wanted to bring Chris Pine back to... Um, further develop an aspect of like an, an introspective aspect of um, Wonder Woman. I feel like it should have been done maybe in Wonder Woman three. I feel like she. I feel like she needed um, to develop more time on her own, separated from that storyline in the first uh, in the first one to really flesh out and learn new things about the character. Um, I you know I actually had a discussion about um, Wonder Woman, the original Wonder Woman, uh, with my. Um, my first um, professor of film in college, she's also a women's studies professor. And um, she hated the Chris Pine storyline in the original Wonder Woman, which I liked. Um, but so we had this discussion and she really opened my eyes to some of the, um, the ways the first Wonder Woman um, portrays this relationship. And I left that conversation thinking, huh, well, you know, thank God he's dead. So, you know, in Wonder Woman two, uh, Wonder Woman 1984, we can move on and get something new, um, new to this character, and I just feel like they just fell into a trap of not being able to really find anything new to tell about this story or to move her, the character of Wonder Woman ahead in the way that a sequel should. Um, and whenever you combine like this aspect of holding the screenplay down um, and uh, combined with having two villains, it just creates a messy, messy screenplay. And I'm sorry, too, but like, wouldn't it have made so much more sense to bring Chris Pine back a few years? I'll even give you a like a decade after the events of, you know, 1918, whatever it was for him to be gone for 65 years and for her to still be that hung up on him like that. Uh, I don't know what that says to. I think that's sort of a continuity issue, though, too, because they sort of imply the same thing in Justice League, which is supposed to be set contemporary in the contemporary and so they they sort of they attach this like thing this that she's her inability to get past it and i feel like it hampers her individual films because it is kind of a thin characterization well i don't know if you know this danilo but justice league is going to be rebranded and rebooted come this march <laughs> really tell me more <laughs> i don't know i guess i just i do have a little bit of an issue with the whole criticism of like of how do I how do I state this nicely? A lot of people like to criticize Wonder Woman and and in the new Wonder Woman films for her romance with Steve and for being a character who's very wrapped up in this romance. But at the same time, part of me is like, okay, but it's also not feminist to say that she can't be that way. Like, and maybe this is partially because I am a Captain America girl through and through, and he spends every bit of his storylines wrapped up in either Peggy or Bucky. But, like, I don't have a problem with her still pining after Steve. If I lost Chris Pine, I still would be thinking about it 70 years later, I promise you. Because I think they show that, like, she has moved on with her life. She is, she has this fantastic career. Like, I love what they've done with her being this career woman who um, has kind of settled into this life where she does these, like, small good deeds, uh, but also is doing cool stuff at the Smithsonian. I am a little confused about something about that, though. Do people yeah. know that she's Wonder Woman? I don't think so. I didn't seem so, like anyone yeah. did. Like, I don't on think the, so. When they were they doing those really news clarify. sequences. Yeah, because that was another thing, too, that I found to be a little jarring. Because to your point, Nicole, I you know did take notice of the fact that, okay, they're establishing that she's 
you know, doing things with her life. She has this career and such, and she goes to these events and these amazing dresses that would capture any person's attention. And nobody like looks because Wonder Woman is just such a public figure. It looks like to so many people like casually on the streets, just saving people left and right that like. Nobody knows it's her. I, I, I mean, at least Clark, at least Clark Kent has the glasses, and you know you can. <laughs> I was going to say that. I was like, glasses do not really change someone's face. <laughs> no, but at least it's something. <laughs> I think. I guess so. Like they just would never think that she would be Wonder Woman. Like they just don't think that Wonder Woman could be walking amongst them. Um, like people are dumb. I don't know. I kind of believe it. <laughs> And moving away from then the uh, the overall tone of the film, um, let's talk about the villains of this film. Let's talk about Kristen Wiig, Pedro Pascal, and I'll just come right out and say it. I agree with Nicole. Pedro Pascal knows exactly what kind of movie he is in, in my opinion, even if the movie itself did not fully trust itself to be that movie at times. But Pedro Pascal goes just as hard as Hans Zimmer's score in this movie, and I was absolutely here for every single over-the-top moment of it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And then Kristen Wiig is also in the movie, too. I forgot about that. But that's how the movie treats her, too. Yeah. I just I'm going to go on a rant. I have a lot of issues with these villains, you know. So as I said before, I think and what Nicole was saying also, like it would have been better to just have one villain. And I mean, to be fair, Maxwell Lord is not the most interesting villain anyways. But like he's just some oil man in this and Grants, he's just like this genie guy who grants everyone's wishes. But in the comics, he can he turns into a metahuman at some point and he can influence people's minds. And at one point he takes over Superman's mind and Superman almost kills Wonder Woman. And there's all this drama. And I feel like if he had been, you know, like a metahuman who could control people's minds, he would have been more of a threat to Wonder Woman. I felt like these villains were not big enough threats to her for the stakes to be as high as they should be. You know what I mean? Like, I felt like she could easily take down these humans, right? Yeah, in the first film, she's going up against a god. Here, she's going up against uh, freaking Dangle Plainview and There Will Be Blood. Or it could have been, let's get rid of Maxwell completely, and it could have been like a Wonder Woman and a Cheetah movie. Like, Cheetah's her most iconic archenemy. It could have given her a whole big backstory and shit. It could have been both their films. Like, when are we ever going to see Cheetah again? Like, probably not. And they do, like, give her this whole... They both survive. Both her and Max. Well, we'll see. We never get what we want. (laughs) True, true. (laughs) Anyway. I did learn that from this film. (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah so i mean maybe we will maybe we not but it would have been so cool to just get more of her and her backstory and um yeah so that was my biggest problem was just these two villains and how we concentrate more on the more uninteresting one and just completely leave cheetah in the dust i uh i agree uh for one i i'm i might be the minority here i don't think i think pascal is good to start but i feel like he his shtick wears as the film goes on because i don't feel like he's given a a, a lot to do i feel like we almost take dimension away the more he becomes kind of this cartoonish villain and and i just it didn't quite connect i think the way it's connecting for some people but to sarah's point two villains almost never works in a superhero movie but the the villain problem ties into like the problem with the plot which is that it just feels so low stakes like when they discover the item that becomes sort of the macguffin of the film i i anticipated it 
being like a step to get to the main plot. But it turned out to be the main plot. And I think that's a problem because it does feel a step down, not only like importance, but just in like a dramatic level. You know, it just felt weaker. I mean, think about this way. The first Wonder Woman, she was all about defeating uh, Ares, the god of war. Right. And there was this idea of Wonder Woman representing goodness coming up against something as destructive as war and making the world a better place for that, right? In a way, the stakes of the first film were as high as you can get. The stakes of this film, like, when Max is doing his whole, uh, I don't even know what what you would call it, like, Dragon Ball Z spirit bomb technique. <laughs> I, I, like, I, I don't know what the hell. I, I honestly can't tell you, like, logically speaking, like, what was going on in this plot at times. I couldn't tell you the rules, I couldn't tell you I I, like I kind of was just going along with it. But man, oh, man, did it lose me in terms of just level of comprehension. But my point being, though, is that in that final scene where Diana is supposed to be at her lowest moment and she can succeed and, you know, she speaks to the goodness in everyone's hearts and we get our resolution and so on and so forth. I just kept thinking the whole time, like, this is it. Yeah, this is the lowest that you're going to bring down this character. I just it didn't feel comparable to the first film where she lost freaking Steve. And and once again, it's like if tonally they wanted to go in that lighter direction, that would work on paper. But they get caught in this weird middle ground to where they want it to be as dramatic, but uh, push the stakes far less. So you end up with this weird mishmash dramatically. Just to prove how convoluted this plot does get and how lost I was at times. Before I wrote my review, I did, in fact, go and read the Wikipedia summary just Me to make too. sure I hadn't missed anything. Me too. Like, I, I was, was like, positive did I, I had missed, missed something? I was like, did I fall asleep and not realize it? Like, <laughs> But no, it just it just did that, I guess. But I um, I almost wish, and maybe this would also solve some of the whole oh, issues oh, with the she wishes. plot line. Um, I almost wish that, like, (laughs) that it had let it focus more on the idea that, like, her adversary is almost herself and that she has to get over Steve and move on with her life and she has to let go of her own, uh, you know, sort of wish fulfillment that's happening because I do think that that's an interesting plot right there and could have totally worked if they wanted it to be in this lighter realm, um, And if you cut down to maybe one villain, maybe there'd be more time for that. Because I thought that was an interesting thing where she has to let go and accept that, like, she has to make this sacrifice for the sake of saving everyone else as well. Which, by the way, Nicole, that scene in the alley where she does renounce her wish and they do say goodbye, that is such a touching moment. And they're going for it dramatically in their performances during that scene. But I kept, but I, but I asked myself when it was over, I was like, wait a minute. As she was like walking away from him, I was like, did I miss something? Why did she need to do that? And why did the film play it off? Like it was such a big deal all of a sudden. Like the film failed to make me understand why that moment needed to happen then. Cause I thought, like you said, Nicole, I actually thought that they were building up to that for the end. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I came a lot earlier than I think we all expected. I also think if they had kind of let that be the bigger conflict, um, they could have reckoned with the weirdness around the fact that um, Steve is only there because he is in some other dude's body. Like, 
And that's <laughs> so weird. And I wish that they had reckoned with that at all. But they just kind of like glossed over that like he essentially like somehow stole this man's body and life. And that's kind of weird. And I wish that like they had let Diana morally have to deal with that. And that that maybe had also played into her decision because then it wouldn't have felt quite so strange because it's one of those things that the more I think about it the more I'm like oh oh no that's odd (laughs) I think I think if they had just if they just wanted to nonsensically sort of bring him back I think they could have done it in a less sort of kind of creepy way kind of strange uh that was an odd choice to go that way and then not flesh it out he could have easily just come back as himself yeah I don't understand the whole like and avoided a lot of Friday sort of situation. strange questions. Yeah, yeah, because believe me, there were a lot of questions going through my head, especially <laughs> at the very, very end, where uh, she's oh. talking to the same guy again. Only this time, it's not Steve; it's just the guy. And I was like, "Am I the only one creeped out by this?" Yeah, <laughs> I mean. I guess, you know, when Gal Gadot starts talking to you, you just roll with it because and you don't ask too many questions. But I mean, <laughs> well, narratively, it's very strange. Go ahead, Ren. Oh, no, Matt, I'm, like, I have to say, you know, Gal Gadot, even though I wasn't really having a great time with the movie, um, she always kept me engaged and interested. Like, I forgot how amazing she is in this performance, she, in, in this role. She's just so natural and so charming. And like I love her scenes as Diana. Um, in in the real world, but also you know, as Wonder Woman, um, she's she's a delight on screen, and uh, she really held the film together as much as she as much as one could under the circumstances. I I hope I I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but I don't think Gal Gadot is a good actress, but I do think that she is right for this role. I agree. Yeah, that feels That's right. How I feel. Yeah, she is. She <laughs> is very likable in this. I think and she's she, a great Wonder Woman. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like I feel like, especially in this one, she brought, you know, something different to the role that we've never seen before. Like she's much, you know, much more vulnerable, much, much, much weaker than before, and she really just brings out Diana's humanity really well. But mm-hmm. yeah, I do agree. I don't even know if I don't even know if I've seen her in anything else other than this, but yeah, I mean, bits and pieces here and there I've seen her in, but you know, nothing to necessarily write home about. Yeah. I think that once the storyline, you know, like I said before, starts getting a little globe trotting and we start traveling over to Egypt, I think that's where the heavy exposition with the Dreamstone and everything like it start. I think that's where it started to lose me. Is that where it started to lose everybody else, too? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I think that's where like it hurt the most. And once again, I, 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 man, I don't know. I think my favorite sequence in the movie is right after she, you know, leaves Steve, says goodbye to him again. <laughs> and then she flies into the air and she learns how to actually fly after, oh, wait, presenting the invisible jet earlier on in the movie. So don't know what the point of that was if she was going to learn how to fly later on anyway but man oh man god damn this movie they use adagio in d minor from sunshine by john murphy and it just hit me in the right spot because i love that piece of film music so much 
It's like one of the most epic pieces of music ever written, and they use it for this what's supposed to be an epic moment. But for me, otherwise, I was kind of just like, but the invisible jet. (laughs) It's like a musical cheat code. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) The movie's not working. What do we do? Adagio in D minor. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think that once once we arrive there, it's the thing that where it's like it, it's it's the recurring issue. It's like the light. If you're going to make it lightweight, you can't make it this convoluted. You have to pick one because the convolution goes way up. And to Nicole's point, this is where I started to like double check and like rewind. Like, wait, did I miss? I, I felt like my I felt like it was skipping or something. What did you guys say? I know we kind of all said a piece about Pedro Pascal already. And I know we talked about like how Cheetah gets sidelined, but what do you guys think of like what Kristen Wiig was actually doing and bringing to the role? I thought she was really good. Um, I feel like yeah, it's the first one I've seen that hasn't been a comedy, and I thought she did really well. Like she's kind of naturally like funny, anyways. But I think throwing her in this environment where she's like kind of evil was like really cool to see her um, play with that. And she she rocks some really hot outfits. <laughs> I really liked her performance. For me, it just felt like there were scenes missing. Like, it felt like sometimes there were jumps in characterization. And I don't think that's her fault. Like, I think she actually does a really good job. It just felt um, not fully connected. Like, the the Barbara that we see in the beginning, uh, I didn't fully buy how she becomes cheat up, but like, I don't think that's Kristen Wiig's fault. I think she did a really good job of what she was given. Um, I just do think that like it got maybe too extreme too fast based on where it started. And like, obviously her plotline was not given the breathing room that it needed. I think that Kristen Wiig was miscast in my opinion. And I say this not because of her necessarily, but because in that first act where we are introduced to her and she's supposed to be this clumsy, geeky type person that nobody ever notices and Diana happens to notice her and, you know, she looks up to her and, like, wants to be like her and such. I'm sorry, but I don't know how you can convince me that Kristen Wiig is supposed to be that person. And... I, I I have a hard time buying that. I really, really do. I, she she doesn't strike me as that type of person. I, like I I I would be like, oh my god! Like I work with Kristen Wiig. Like she's 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 gorgeous. Like you know, come on. It feels um, it feels kind of like the prom casting Nicole Kidman as the chorus girl who can never get a leading role. Like yeah, hey, it's like you're you Nicole freaking Kidman. <laughs> Nicole, I'm blushing right now. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, I kind of, I, I, Matt, I kind of, I see your point, and um, maybe there's a part of me that does agree with you. I think had they committed more to the comedic tone, I think that that like uh, that aspect could have been overlooked, or it would have flowed better. Probably. Um. Yeah. I do think um, Kristen Wiig is so talented, and I do think she. I think the, the effort is there on her part. And there are parts of her performance that do that, that that do work. I even bought into why she wouldn't want to stop Max because she would lose her wish then be, becoming the person that she was starting to become. I, I bought even that part of it. Well, um, I, I will say, though, my favorite scene in the movie is whenever she uh, whenever she confronts the guy in the street. Yeah, that scene with her in the alley. I once again, 
leaning into stereotypes a little too much. It felt like lazy writing to me and something that I had seen before. What did you guys think? As a way to show like a development of like her character. I agree. Uh, I think what you just described is something that hampers the whole film, though. So this didn't stick out as particularly bad writing just because I felt like it matched everything else, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's the commitment right there, right? Oh, if we're going to do one thing bad, we might as well just do everything <laughs> bad and lean into it. I can't it. imagine that was the game plan, but yes, <laughs> no. in a way. <laughs> no, I genuinely think they thought they were making something like earnest to God, like good. And I don't think that anybody like raised their hand and said, you think this storytelling might be a little old fashioned? <laughs> I also had like a little bit of an issue with the that whole scene where they're like, "Oh wow, look at her! She's she's uh she's really going off now. She's clearly you know losing it because she like attacked a man who had tried to assault her." I was like, "I don't know, man. I'm I'm kind of still vibing with her. Like this was not <laughs> the way to get me to see that she's oh she's gone off the rails." Like I was like, "No, this still Wait. seems fine to me." I thought it was supposed to be about empowerment. Yeah. I, I to like, me, it reads like it's the turning point for the character because after that, whenever you see her, she's pretty much all bad. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Like it is that. the turning point. And after that, she is a villain. And before that, she is clearly not a villain. And I think it's, it's a really weird way to make that transition. And I think, you know, were there actually scenes uh, in between that scene and her scenes where she is fully becoming Cheetah, uh, it would work fine. But it feels very weird to me that that's their scene where it's like, oh, she's coming to these powers and she's not going to use them for good. I was like, oh, no, like this isn't the way to transition that. But I don't think she's as bad of a villain as Max is in this movie. I, I actually think that her quote unquote villainy is actually one that is more stemming from self-interest and her newfound confidence in her and strength within herself. I, I, I don't see her as a villain. I, I honestly don't. And I think that's what makes her uh, maybe the better villain of the two because of the fact that everything that she does, like, I don't think that anything that she does, I would quote, quote unquote, say it's bad. It's all driven by a motivation that I understand at least. Like I said, even when uh, she, you know, Diana is like, you know, asking her to help her stop Max and she won't do it because then she'll lose this these new abilities and confidence and feeling seen and so on and so forth that she's experienced lately. Like I, I bought that and I was like, you know, I thought that made her more interesting as a character. It's just unfortunate the movie itself never took that anywhere meaningful. Instead, we got a. I, I don't even know what to call it, but like, I guess um, we, we got a sequel to Tom Hooper's Cats in the end. I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I think, I, Nicole, I'm glad that you um, brought that up because I was kind of, and I think what you say makes more sense. Had there been a couple more scenes in between that scene and um, the rest of her arc, it would have, um, it, it would have been, it would have made more sense. But the fact that both Matt and I, both read it differently i think just in the fact that you read it so differently i think that just shows there is just no transparency here with the writing the writing is so messy and um it's just all over the place absolutely i think it's interesting though matt because for me uh barbara slash cheetah's motivations did not work anywhere near as well as max lord's like i bought into the whole story about him with the kid and like 
you know, wanting to prove himself and like the weird flashbacks to his childhood a lot more. And maybe that's just partially because I'm like, yeah, I also wish I looked like Gal Gadot. I like I'm not becoming a cheetah because of it Um, that I was kind of like, okay, yeah, sure. So do most women in America. Like, um, get over yourself. I mean, when when Pedro Pascal has that moment with his son in the field oh. at the end, I I was like, why is this the best scene in the movie? <laughs> you know, Listen, like, Pedro Pascal has cornered the market on dads who are trying their best and not maybe doing that well at it. Like, that's 2020 is Pedro Pascal as a dad. Um and I think that that really works. And maybe it doesn't like work in this movie. I don't know. That's one of those scenes where I was like, this feels like a different film, maybe a better film. Uh, but for me, he made that character work a lot better than I think that character worked on paper. Um, just because his performance, I thought, was so engaging. All I kept thinking of when he was like in that um, portal thing and his hair was like swooshing in the air and the lights and everything all I kept thinking of was that scene in like Lord of the Rings with Kate Blanchett and he was like in place of a cheetah you shall have a king not dark but beautiful no I'm kidding um but like the way that he was delivering like all of his dialogue and there he's like Alistair and he's like like I'm like yo Pedro Pascal is like he's at an 11 right now and I'm kind of loving it. He's just too good for this movie. I really I don't know like and I know some people who think he's actively bad in this but I I thought that he was having like a ball with this role. He was just so excited for his face to get to show in a film I mean. Uh, no, but I thought I thought he was having fun, and I was having fun with him. And then all of a sudden, he would do something and be like, "Oh no, wait, that hurts!" Like, I suddenly am emotional about this film that I thought I didn't have any emotions towards. Yeah, um, which is part of what kept me as engaged as I was. And then, I mean, I guess the other question, and it's so funny that you know, for a big blockbuster two and a half hour movie like this, there's so little action scenes, but. What you guys? What you guys think of like the action scenes, like the convoy sequence or the final fight between uh, Diana and, and Cheetah at the end? Like, I mean, what you guys think of those? I mean, the op- the um, convoy scene had "Open Road," which is my favorite song on the score. So I was having the time of my life, and um, yeah, like I said, Cheetah, the Cheetah one is just so short, and they just leave her in the dust. I had so much more fun with that opening sequence of the Amazons doing their, like, weird American Ninja Warrior game uh, than I did with any of the actual action sequences in this, that it was kind of sad because it, like, opened on a really high note in terms of, like, wow, fun stunts. Um, And then it never really got there for me after that. I also, like, I don't know. Frankly, I didn't really need big action sequences from this movie, and I spent most of that cheetah fight just thinking about the movie cats. As many of us did. <laughs> I think the action sequences got better. Uh, I, th- I The one, the big action centerpiece in the middle of the film, um, I thought was one of the higher points for me. Um, I didn't think that the visual effects, I mean, it's pretty, uh, the first film is pretty beloved, um, but the one aspect, it, it's, criticized to this day about is its visual effects um and i thought the vis- that the special effects here 
were just as bad. And maybe that's why I disliked the opening scene so much. I just felt so distracted by the visual effects. No, you you could definitely tell that it's CGI bodies. It's so many sequences and they're not really rendered that well. I yeah. I definitely agree with you, Ryan. But like, I would say that the special effects in this movie are no different than what I've seen in like an MCU film. Yeah, they're pretty meh. Yeah, it's like not amazing, but I mean, it depends. Like the Avengers movies are amazing just because of how much is happening on screen. But, you know, your standalone MCU movies, um, unless if you're like Doctor Strange, where you're doing like very innovative, wonky, crazy visual effects, um, they're all pretty, you know, standard. Like I've seen it before. And there's nothing in Wonder Woman 1984 that I, you know, took a moment and went, oh, my God, like, I've never seen that before. And that never happened once. There's There was one cool practical effects shot in the convoy sequence that I really liked where it's from behind Steve as he's driving one of the uh, vehicles and the car crashes and the camera is still, like, in the car when it happens. And then he gets out up through the windshield and then the camera like goes from the back seat through the windshield and follows him for a brief second. I was like, Oh, that camera guy must've been having fun doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but also too, like that convoy sequence also made me once again, question the movie's logic because there's a moment where she's stuck between two of the vehicles and she's doing a leg press of one of the vehicles. And I'm like, should this be a struggle for her? She's Wonder Woman. Can't she just like flick the damn thing and would go flying? Like, I, I don't know how strong she really is, you know? I mean, we're also at this point where she's starting to lose her powers, right? Yeah, that's how I took it. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. What? Wait, you didn't know she was losing her powers? Is that like part of the plot? Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. She suffers like injuries. Yeah. When she like makes the wish, it takes her, starts taking her powers away. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's why she has to part ways with Steve Trevor. That's why she's, like, getting shot and stuff. I, I, yeah. I noticed that she got shot. Okay, okay. This is all starting to make more sense to me now in terms of, okay, because I actually was going to bring that up, too. Like, oh, she can, she can get shot. I didn't know that Wonder Woman could get shot. I must have missed the point where they said that she was getting weaker because of the wish. It's the whole thing of, like, for every wish that is granted, something is taken away. It's like it yeah. takes the other thing that you care about most, which yeah. it, I was really like, really? The other thing Diana cares about most is her powers? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I wouldn't have guessed that, but sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's like that's the weird trade off. And that's where she has to decide that like she has to give Steve up to be able to save the world um, and have her powers back or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I mean, Again, I actually think that's a fairly interesting, like, moral dilemma, and I wish that the film had actually set that up better and, like, let us understand it a little bit more fully, because it's fair enough, Matt, they really don't, like, actually hammer that home as hard as I think they should. It's not, it's not the big deal that it feels like it should be because there's so much else going on. Not to mention Steve at any moment can just be like, hey, I'm dead already anyway. Just like, this should be easy for you. <laughs> well, like it takes the idea of sort of love versus powers wholesale from Donner's Superman 2. Yeah. Which, it, it, and it, I think that movie does a better job of sort of fleshing that idea out because this movie has so many other sort of things to juggle and so yeah i don't we don't blame you matt i think we blame the movie for missing okay that. well it, i'm not surprised that something in this plot flew over my head so <laughs> i'm not surprised at all 
All right, final thoughts on Wonder Woman 1984. Sarah, what do you got? Um, I mean, I feel like we pretty much covered everything. Now I just, after everyone's good takes, I feel like I'm going to have to put my rating down a star. Sometimes that's the way it goes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've been there, Sarah, a couple of times on this show where that has happened to me. Ryan, what about you? Final thoughts? I'm good. All right. Nicole? I will say that for all that I have criticized this film, I did still have fun with it. And that might just be that uh, a lot of, you know, we haven't had a lot of this type of film this year, I feel like. Uh, And so maybe I was just like more open to a fun, non-logical superhero movie than I would have been, say, last year or the year before. But I do think there is good in this film. And like I said, I think the performances are pretty, pretty good across the board. I think there's some really interesting ideas in there. I actually really like this whole theme of like, uh, you can get the thing that you think you want most and it not be what you thought it was. But at the same time, like, I, whenever I finished watching this, I was like, wow, I really like Birds of Prey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's probably not what i should have taken out of watching wonder woman 1984 birds of prey 2 when (laughs) (laughs) that's the sequel i want (laughs) and danilo castro um i think it was sarah who mentioned it this movie just takes way too long to get going especially for the amount of plot that it wants to get through and uh there's just lots of ways they could have done this better. It's a disappointing movie just because it should have been much better. And uh, yeah, I think disappointed is the right word to to have to to be the closing thought. I have uh, a couple of final thoughts here. Uh, number one, this is a Christmas movie. That's, That's number true, one. Yeah. And I was uh, kind of mortified by that when the final scene happened, but here we are. Uh, number two, uh, Valinda Carter cameo at the end if by now people that are listening to this haven't realized that this is a spoiler filled review uh there you go (laughs) (laughs) i don't know where they're gonna go with that i don't know if i care but it was still kind of exciting to see her on screen as cheesy as it was and that's another thing too like there is so much in this movie that is cheesy hokey and unbelievable like everyone at the end renouncing their wishes i i don't know like, I, I don't know if the movie had done a good enough job up to that point to get me to buy that that is something that would actually realistically happen, especially during the 80s. The yeah, 80s? Clearly, clearly <laughs> this world has no logic in it. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, we, sure. we can we can answer that. Why the answer is no, it didn't. Okay. (laughs) I will say my parents were very excited about the Linda Carter cameo. So I do think that for, you know, people who... Uh, grew up watching her as Wonder Woman, I think will probably be more excited about that than people who didn't. Yeah. It's a fun it, nod. It looked so much like Gal Gadot from the back. I was like, oh, where's she going? What's up? And then she turns around. I'm like, oh my God, it's Linda, guys. <laughs> oh, that was so good. I loved it. Best part of the movie. <laughs> Apart from, actually, I do have a final thought. Sorry, yeah. Matt. It's okay. But um, Chris Pine fashion show. Yes. Best scene. Yes. Yeah. That's my thought. I need for someone to put that scene on YouTube so I can just watch that. Please and thank you. I that was actually kind of going to my next thought, which was I genuinely loved the costumes in the first Wonder Woman and I loved them here again. I think that 
I, 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 once again, I'm kind of upset that we jumped this far in time in our sequel because I think there was just such a missed opportunity to show Diana in so many different types of outfits over these last couple of decades. But who knows? Maybe we'll get another standalone film that will be also somewhere between Wonder Woman 1 and 1984. I don't know. <laughs> My rating for this film... Oh, man, I'm stuck in the middle with it. I'm going with a 5 out of 10. Sarah, what about you? Um... My original rating was 7 out of 10, but I'm going down to a 6. Okay. Danila? I'm going to go with a 5 as well. All righty. Ryan? A 4. Okay. Nicole? I, like, teeter between a 5 and a 6, but at the end of the day, I did have a pretty good time watching it, so I'll go with a 6. All right. Solidarity. (laughs) All right. So Wonder Woman 1984... First, Wonder Woman did not receive any Oscar nominations after having a pretty strong showing in the guilds that year. And a lot of people, myself included, thinking it would get at least one nomination somewhere, showed up empty handed. This year, we're in a pandemic year. Visual effects category especially is hurting for contenders, in my opinion, or at least traditional contenders that the Academy is used to. So... Even though, Ryan, I know you are displeased by the visual effects in this, it might just get the nomination there by default. What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't know. I am I, I have it in my 10. I don't think I have it in my 5. I, have to, I would have to double check, but it's in the hunt for sure. I mean, you know, it is, it is pretty remarkable that the first Wonder Woman built up so much goodwill among the guilds. That even got um, the PGA nomination, right? Yep. That's, I mean, that's insane. Like, um, so I actually, if, if this, if, what do I, if this film would have delivered at a quality, um, it, like it was similar to the first or even just a few notches below the first, I actually think that it would have been good for a, a handful of nominations, like maybe you know, up to even four tech below the line tech nominations. So, um, I don't know. We'll see. I think it, it, there are good things in its column, name recognition and visibility on HBO max, um, at, at the forefront of its chances. I know, Sarah, I know you're a very big fan of the Hans Zimmer score. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I am as well. <laughs> Been listening to it for two weeks, y'all. <laughs> it's just going in circles. But I think I have to burst anyone's bubble, including yours, Sarah, and say that I just, I can't imagine a world. I just can't imagine it where he would get an Oscar nomination for this, even though it is one of the more exciting scores I've listened to this year. Just in terms of its like propulsive energy. Yeah, I agree. And then like I guess if we're just talking like any other prospects here, I mean Ryan, you mentioned a couple of things that could land in there. I mean, Nicole, what do you think about costumes in this? I really don't see costumes happening. I really see this getting nominations in fields that are weak because of things that got moved. Things like sound and visual effects. Um Particularly places that, you know, like I think uh, with like Dune having been pushed, uh, there's space in visual effects. I don't really see this getting in in places like costume or score that there are plenty of good options for them to choose from. I agree. Yeah, I'm even starting to think that there is a world where actually, no, I think I'm going to lean this way. I I, I think Wonder Woman 1984 is going to go empty handed the same as the first film. I'm with you. Even in that visual effects category. 
Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised. Anything else on the table? I think, honestly, on its best day, it gets two. And there's a very probable chance it gets none. How do we feel about, like, makeup and hairstyling? I mean, her eyeliner in the final scene is incredible. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) I mean, it is, like, a possibility, I guess. I just don't... I feel like there are other things that they could go for, especially when there's some things that feel like... uh, uh, more obvious picks than this, mm-hmm. um, especially if they didn't go for it the first time around. Yeah, it's very much one of those movies that you're like, maybe, but probably not. In like exactly. Categories. Yeah. I mean, I think a clean shave in Pedro Pascal immediately disqualifies it from the makeup and hairstyling race, <laughs> but that's just me. It did hurt me a little bit. I was like, oh no, why would you shave that? <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, that'll do it for our review of Wonder Woman 1984 here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Ryan, tell everyone where they can find you on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at RCS818. Danilo Castro. Um, You can find me on Twitter at Danilo S. Castro. Sarah Clements. You can find me on Twitter at Mildred's Fierce. And Nicole Ackman. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Nicole Ackman16. And you can find me in Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Wonder Woman 1984 here on the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you can get exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time. I think it's very important that you all know that I did this whole podcast with my new baby Yoda in my lap. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm sitting here like, wow, Pedro Pascal as a dad Um, (laughs) while I hold baby Yoda. Uh, (laughs) I feel like you're going to have to do so much editing on this podcast, Matt. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I feel like forgot how to podcast over Christmas, apparently. I forgot (laughs) what spaceships were. Clearly, things that fly into space. I don't know. Clearly, I'm getting my wish for something, and in return, my ability to podcast is what I'm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God! (laughs) That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Comfortable. 